Welcome to AFSPA Talks, a production of the American Foreign Service Protective Association with Chief Operating Officer Kyle Longton. Be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast channel. Enjoy the episode. Hi, and welcome to another episode of AFSPA Talks. I'm Kyle Longton, and I'm here to kick off our focus for June, which is on infertility and family formation. Um, This is uh, sometimes a difficult topic to discuss, um, regardless of what stage you're discussing it. Maybe it's a diagnosis of infertility or even just a struggle to get pregnant for some couples or some individuals. Um, And sometimes it's a whole journey and can be journey through artificial reproductive um, technologies and therapies. It can be a process of adoption. Um, It can take a lot of different forms or even a decision not to have children, um, depending on where you are in your life. And we're, con- we're going to go through several episodes this month about what that has looked like and different facets of it. Some of those episodes we have are still coming together, so I'm not going to preview everything. Um, but I can tell you um, in just a moment about today's episode where we're going to focus on mental health and infertility as well as mental health when you're considering other ways to expand your family. We will have an episode as well as AFSPA Live on June 30th. So mark your calendar for June 30th for the next AFSPA Live. But we will have during that live event as well as with one of our episodes this month, um, conversations with some of our members and others who have gone through processes of expanding their family through adoption, through art procedures, and and other ways. And so I I look forward to sharing those with you. There have been some great conversations we've already recorded. I'm looking forward to more. I will encourage those of you who are listening who are um, maybe have have gone through some struggles in the past or some challenges, or maybe you're going through them now, do tune in um, to listen to these stories. Join us for AFSPA Live. We'd be happy to hear your story and and answer any questions that we can um, from personal perspectives. I can share with you just to start off this episode that this was something that my my spouse and I um, struggled with some years ago. Um, we had been trying to expand our own family um, and, and get pregnant in that case and had been unsuccessful. Um, now, our story ended um, quickly and, and happily for us where we were going in to get, um, we, we actually went through a number of different ways. We, we had gone through training for um, foster parenting and actually started to foster um, with the goal of eventually adopting. Um, and we were also going through some final testing to, to determine that you know pregnancy and, and family formation that way wasn't in our future. And when we went in for the test results, we found out that in fact, we were pregnant. Um, I, I say we, my wife was pregnant um, and we were expecting twins. Um, and, and we were blessed with those twins in May of 2016 and with the third child um, in February 2019. Um, my, my spouse did authorize me um, to share that, you know, one of the main challenges we had was uh, PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, um, which is not all that uncommon, but it's also not that well understood. Um, so I just, I, I share that because this is common. This is something a lot of us face, but it's also not something that a lot of us talk about. And my hope is, We've been all about it since the very first episode of this podcast that we can remove some stigma stigma around these different um, topics that that we don't talk about, but that are incredibly important um, and that tie into our health and well-being. And we're going to kick that off today in the area of infertility and family formation by talking about mental health around those topics. 
and we have an expert and, and we had a really great conversation um, with our guests today. And when we went to, to, to find somebody, we turned to our, our partners at the Truman Group, um, uh, which provides mental health support services for a number of our members, particularly those living and working overseas and, and who um, partnered with us on an episode last year. But they um, put me in touch with today's guest and I wanna share her bio with you and in the fantastic conversation that we had. Dr. Alicia Janik, PsyD, is a licensed clinical psychologist holding a doctorate in clinical psychology and a master's degree in human sexuality education with over 15 years of experience in a variety of clinical settings. She works predominantly with expats worldwide and understands both personally and professionally the unique joys and challenges of living away from a culture of origin. Dr. Janik's areas of expertise include supporting individuals and couples navigating perinatal health and family formation, including fertility, prenatal loss, pregnancy, the transition to parenthood, postpartum care, and considerations regarding different paths to building a family. Um, she also works in the area of supporting and empowering members of the LGBTQ population and their families, and working with international school staff to promote the strength and well-being of their community. She also works individually with adolescents and adults who are experiencing major life transitions, depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, and loss, relationship challenges and issues surrounding identity development uh, with a social justice and multicultural framework. And I'll just pause there before we get into the discussion to mention that, of course, June is Pride Month, and we will um, acknowledge that in a number of different ways through our podcast and, and through our live event this month. Uh, but our, our conversation with Dr. Janik is meant to be inclusive. Um, so I hope you'll hang in there until the end and I welcome your feedback at any time. But without any further ado, Dr. Janik, welcome to Ask the Talks. Thank you, it's so nice to be here today. We are, are, are so glad to have you and, and somebody with your um, knowledge and experience to, to talk us through um, and help us continue our theme for this month. Um, and that, that focus that we've had this month has been on infertility um, and fertility treatments and family formation generally. And so I think in our discussion, I'd like to start at what is sort of the beginning for many people. Um, and after months of trying to conceive without success, and perhaps even before a formal diagnosis from a healthcare provider, um, people are confronting a reality that they are struggling to grow their family in the way that they plan through, through conceiving and um, you know, carrying their own child and, and giving birth to their own child. Um, can you talk about what people may be experiencing at that point mentally and emotionally? Sure, absolutely. I think there are a lot of things that come up for people um, in different ways, and there isn't one particular way that people respond, but certainly something that I have found in my work with folks that comes up very regularly is a lot of anxiety and worry, honestly, for, for women in particular, um, this idea of a biological clock ticking, that that's something that they're really concerned about. Um, for some people, it's a sense of regret or questioning decisions that they've made before in terms of having waited, especially for women who have pursued a career or something along those lines. Um, I think sometimes having low mood or a sense of helplessness or hopelessness, um, a lot of uncertainty, honestly, around whether or not what they had envisioned for their family is going to be able to become a reality or not. And um, for some people, a sense of inadequacy can come up, whether they're questioning whether it's something about them or something about their partner or for the two of them for that matter. 
um, I think the one thing that I tend to think about is this idea of a reproductive story. So this idea of how do people envision their family? And this is something that we have with each of us throughout our lives that we, we experience the family that we grow up in and we have an idea of what that might look like, what we want or don't want compared to what we had when sure. we were growing up. Um, but then on top of that, there, if, if it's a couple or a partnership, there are two versions of that, perhaps, even if folks think that they're very aligned on that, that it might be a little bit different, actually, in certain regards. Um, and so I think just um, being able to think about what is the, the vision of that reproductive story and then how it's unfolding often is very different than what they had been anticipating. So a sense of grief and loss around that, actually, um, and things not looking like how they had anticipated or how they had hoped or wanted. That makes a lot of sense. Um... And, and in your experience, do those feelings change or, or relationship dynamics um, change or even intensify when a, a diagnosis from a medical provider comes along? It can, and it can change in different directions, actually. I think sometimes it can be a sense of hope to have an answer of, oh, this is what's going on, especially if there's a particular um, biological factor involved in the infertility that can be identified. Obviously, there are a lot of times that it's not clear as to what's causing the infertility or what's driving that. Um, I think another thing, so just having an idea of what's what's driving that can lead to a really concrete plan. And for some people, there's a lot of sense of relief in that. Okay, we have someone who's able to give us a diagnosis and we can move forward with a treatment plan. And so there could be a sense of hope with that. Okay. I think a lot of times, it can lead to a lot of fear and anxiety and worry as well, though. So if folks find out more information, they might do a lot of research on their own, rightfully so. But that can lead to a lot of distress, just looking at some of the statistics of success rates, if you want to call it that, um, in terms of different procedures or things that they might be pursuing. And then just the reality of some of the, the stress and strain that might come along with that in terms of financial concerns or things like that. Um, I think there could also be a sense of guilt or shame um, or a sense of deep responsibility if, if it is identified that one of the partners is that there's something biologically going on, even if obviously it's something outside of their control, that right. they might internalize that as something that they're in control of, even though technically they're not. Or um, certainly that could bring up some some feelings of frustration within the, in a partnership or a couple, too. That That makes perfect sense. And I'm sure... I know you, you, you've worked with individuals and with couples, so I'm sure you've seen that um, uh, from all directions. Right. The, the process of, of seeking treatment, if, if somebody chooses to go that route, can involve surgery, it can involve hormone injections, it can involve um, artificial reproductive technology or art procedures, um, or there may be other options unique to that individual. Um, those are not always easy. They can be grueling and draining on the individual and on couples, on finances, like you mentioned before. Can you talk a bit about your experiencing, uh, excuse me, experience counseling people during sort of this phase when they, they've, they've maybe had that hope and they have a path forward and they decide to pursue it? Um, what comes along with that? I think there's a lot that comes along with that. Anticipating normal reactions, I think being realistic about um, both the physiological changes that might be going on associated with any of those procedures or injection. I mean, there's so many levels of intervention that might be going on, um, but not just the, and 
along with the physiological, obviously, if there's anything related to hormonal shifts or changes that can lead to an impact um, both emotionally and mentally as well, along with the stress and um, uncertainty of the process, honestly, as well. Um, so I think with that, just being able to acknowledge that it is tiring, that it is stressful, that there can be more irritability and being able to identify what are the things that are going to support the individual and or couple through that process. What are their needs? Being able to think proactively about some of those things, um, both within the couple, um, you know, if having some really open and honest um, discussion about that and what that could look like and what are things that they could do proactively, but also to be able to promote um, really direct and assertive communication throughout the process as well. So they might anticipate certain things and it might turn out very differently in terms of folks' reactions to that along the way for either partner that's involved in the process. And so I think just being able to have, whether it's in therapy and couples therapy or an individual therapy, or just being able to know how they wanna navigate that. I think another piece around communication that's really important that I talk a lot with folks about is around information management. And by that, it could mean lots of different things. That could be language that they wanna use for themselves or with each other or outside. Um, so that could be with um, employers, that could be with family or friends. Um, different people approach this process in very different ways and there's no right or wrong way to approach it. I think it's being really open and honest about how they want to approach it. And um, that could mean around using certain words or not using certain words. Um, it could mean, do, do, are we labeling this infertility or not? And do, how do we talk about that with people? What level or degree of information do we share with people? And how might that be different for different groups of people? Um, some folks are really private about this process and understandably so. Um, other folks find that it's much more helpful to have a lot of support or you know, a handful of people in their close-knit community that they want to know what's going on and that can be checking in with them throughout the process. But I think even in terms of information management, that can also be along the lines of even people who you do tell, telling those people very clearly up front, please check in with me or please don't check in with me. If if you don't hear any news, no news is is not good news or, or vice versa. I yeah. think just being able to be clear about that, what they want and how they want that to proceed along the way. And then being able to adjust that plan as needed too. So if someone, ha you know, they're sharing something with someone in it, actually ends up feeling not supportive, um, that they can shift how they're approaching that process. If that makes sense. I, I, I so appreciate the, the focus that, that you provided about information management, because this is something that so often happens quietly and privately, and people are facing the challenge alone. And, and that may be what they want, like you said, but, um, mm -hmm. but providing others guidance about how to interact with you on it is such a great place to start. Um, and I appreciate that advice. Um, I don't want to oversimplify, but I think we can talk about sort of two main results if we continue talking about fertility treatments. And, and one is pregnancy and the other is not pregnancy. So um, to start down the path of sort of the, the result of pregnancy, um, immediate euphoria sets in, continues throughout the pregnancy to birth, infancy, into adolescence. And the only time there's ever tension um, is when the parents end up hating their child's choice of a future partner. Is that right? It's it's a perfect one. Once the 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 pregnancy happens, everything's perfect. Oh, I'm laughing because obviously the answer is no, not quite. <laughs> um, certainly. I'm sorry. Can you start again? Oh, sure. I apologize. I meant to hit mute when I was coughing. Go ahead. 
No, that's okay. I was just saying, I, I am laughing at your, your assessment of that because certainly that's not always the case or often the case, to be honest. All right. A lot of times when someone finds out that they're pregnant, it's a huge mix of emotions. Even if it's something that someone has been pursuing and wanting for a really long time, there could be a lot of anxiety in particular, especially, and again, this depends on um, each individual context, obviously, but if there has been any pregnancy or particularly pregnancy loss in the past, that that can bring up a lot of concern about how that pregnancy is going to progress over time, particularly if it's a high-risk pregnancy or something along those lines. Um, so there's a lot of fear, but then there's also fear of having hope so that if if it does progress, but then there's some kind of loss along the way, that if, if you get too connected, that that's going to be really hard to manage and to deal with. Um, and so because of the uncertainty, a lot of people, uh, again, anyone in the partnership or in the process, whether that's an individual or a couple, um, might be hesitant to to get excited or to attach to the idea that their hopes could be coming true to some degree. Um, And that can be really self-protective in a lot of ways, honestly. And so I think a lot of what I work on with folks at any point in this process, whether it's someone who is facing infertility, someone who wants to get pregnant, even if they haven't been diagnosed with infertility, or who are currently pregnant, Um, a lot of what we focus on is taking it one step at a time and being able to frame things about being realistic. That doesn't mean being overly hopeful or overly excited or overly doomsday, you know, going to the extreme and thinking that it's not going to go well, but taking it one step at a time. And a lot of times it's breaking it down into time periods, you know, and, and that's true during a lot of pregnancies is making it to the next time point and finding out more information and then going from there. And along the way, being able to check in with your emotions, with yourself and with your partner, if a partner is involved in the process. Yeah. That's that that's great. And I think I, I will just mention we um did a did a sort of a focus just on healthy pregnancy in an episode mm-hmm. last November. So I'll encourage people um who are interested in more there, our listeners to go back and check out that episode. Um, please. The other thing that I would say too is I think there is this expectation that pregnancy, and this might have been something addressed in the previous episode. No, please go ahead. That pregnancy should be a, a happy time and it's so exciting and so joyful, either that or even post pregnancy, if that comes to pass, that um, being a new parent is so exciting and there are a lot of challenges that are involved in that process as well. And so, not just challenges, but changes and a sense of loss. And I don't mean that in a dramatic way, but I really mean around this idea of just in the same way that if you were transitioning, like you were moving internationally, for example, that's a huge transition and there's a sense of loss. Similarly, there's a sense of change in your identity for for either or both parents and then a shift in roles as well. And so that can be scary. That can be exciting. There could be a whole host of emotions that come up with that as well. And so that's something that I really try to pay attention to with folks and just acknowledge, acknowledge the loss and acknowledge that even if you are really excited and really happy at different points in time, you can also be simultaneously grieving how things are changing. Yeah. We're, we're still people with a, a full range of emotions, even if we're parents. Right. Right. Good to keep, very good to keep in mind. Um, and I want to come back to, to touch on a couple other pre- um, topics around pregnancy um, in just a minute, but I also want to talk about the other path, which is when fertility treatments are not successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so attempts to conceive with art procedures may not result in pregnancy. It is not a guaranteed outcome. Um, and some people may even choose not to pursue art procedures or other treatments at all, um, possibly because of financial constraints. Um, and, and so 
what then what what have you in your practice seen when people do either there's no pregnancy as a result of of the diagnosis yeah and even as you say that i think one other factor that i often pay attention to and think about is um, religious beliefs and practices too Mm -hmm. that within some religions art procedures are there are many um, details to this, obviously, for, for different religions um, and belief systems. But some people, like you said, choose not to pursue that path either. And I think there are a lot of expectations around, well, why didn't you choose to do this, you know, try this option? Or um, you didn't try hard enough. You need to keep trying, whether that's from family members or friends or just um, people who are making comments meant to be innocuous or helpful, but end up feeling really hurtful or painful for folks um, trying to navigate that process. I think the main thing that I think of when this is the case, and especially when it doesn't align with someone's um, idea of uh, the reproductive story that they had envisioned for themselves is a great sense of loss and grief. And so a lot of the work that we do at that point is around grieving and allowing yourself to feel the range of emotions that might come up. I think despair tends to be one of the, the greatest feelings that comes up or the most significant feelings that comes up, but it can involve things like feeling really numb or having a sense of disbelief or anger. Sometimes there's resentment or guilt, again, depending on the nature of, of how the process um, kind of played out. Um, certainly a sense of injustice too and, and or betrayal. And by that, I guess I, to, to clarify that, I mean, it could be a lot of women will often feel a sense of betrayal in their body, that there's this idea that women are, I'm not saying that I believe this or that everyone believes this, but societally that women are meant to have children um, and that that is a main job, if you will, biologically. A defining characteristic, right, a defining perhaps. Characteristic, yeah, obviously. Um, and why isn't my body doing the thing that it was meant to do or um, feeling a sense of betrayal by God or if they're, whatever that means um, by the world or something along those lines, or even the, the medical system for that matter. And in on many fronts, right? So I think it could mean how they were treated in the process along the way, intention, not intentionally necessarily, but um, some of the language that has been used by medical providers and or insurance companies, how much they cover versus don't cover that kind of thing from a financial standpoint as well. Um, I think that there can be an immense sense of loss too, even from a logistical standpoint of some people have invested great amounts of money and or even overextend that I don't want to say overextended themselves, but extend themselves in ways that put a lot of extra strain in terms of picking up extra shifts at work or taking on other jobs like that, just to be able to afford the stream that they have. Um, That can be really, really challenging to, to grieve that loss that it didn't result in the outcome that they had hoped for, even if it's still aligned with the statistics, let's say. Right. Right. And, and, Speaking, returning to pregnancy and speaking about loss and statistics, when you and I first spoke, we spent a good amount of our time discussing miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a number of factors that influence the chance of a successful pregnancy. And those factors are sort of amplified when we're talking about pregnancies involving art procedures. Uh, factors like maternal age, fresh versus frozen embryos, um, and and others have been shown to have an effect on the probability of a successful pregnancy following art procedures. Uh, Now, like you said, regardless of the known risk factors, loss of a pregnancy at any stage, um, and really for any reason, is devastating. Can you tell us what you've encountered in your practice and and how you work with people facing such loss? You've touched on this already. I'm wondering if you can go into a bit more depth. 
Sure. I mean, yes, I think many women experience miscarriage or some kind of um, pregnancy loss. Uh, I think the statistics range, there's a variety of different statistics out there, but it tends to be somewhere around one in four. So a quarter of women have at some point in their life experienced some kind of pregnancy loss. Um, So I think going back to some of the things that I've talked about before, one of the most important things that I think to pay attention to and to to be keyed into for someone is what is the language or how do they frame this loss? Because to your point, it can be devastating. And for some people, they could have um, less emotional reactions to it. Again, it it depends on the circumstances and the nature of um, whether it was something that they had planned for or something that they wanted versus something that's unexpected. And that can bring up a whole host of emotions as well. Someone might not have um, been trying to get pregnant and or wanting to get pregnant and then was pregnant and then experienced a loss, which adds layers of um, complexity to the situation, obviously. But what is the language that they want to use? So was it, do they call it a pregnancy loss? If it's early on in the pregnancy, some women might refer to it as a chemical pregnancy rather than a miscarriage. Um, and some people consider a chemi- like to talk about a chemical pregnancy as a miscarriage, because again, when you get a positive pregnancy test, you, your mind is going to all of the aligning with some of the hopes or dreams or ideas of that reproductive story that you may have um, already had solidified for yourself. So I think thinking about how you want to talk about it as an individual, and then how you want to communicate that to other people, what are the feelings and reactions that come up? A lot of it is around a sense of grief and loss for, for many people. And yet at the same time, it's really easy to assume that something is so devastating or that someone needs or wants to deal with something in a particular way or would have particular reactions. Um, but I think the one thing that I hear and read time and again, which I completely wholeheartedly agree with is nobody grieves in the same way. And so I think that's one piece that I didn't even speak to before, whether we're talking about miscarriage or pregnancy loss um, at any point in time for both, for either or both partners, people are going to grieve in different ways. And so I think a lot of the work that can be done, whether it's in couples therapy or individual therapy, or just in being able to engage in a process of self-reflection is what does this mean to me? Um, how am I handling this loss? How am I handling it in ways that are healthy for me um, and helping me move through the grieving process? I think a lot of people think, oh, I just have to get over it or, um, but it's not really getting over something. It's yeah. working through the feelings and that that's a process. And I don't think that there's an end point to that. I really do think that it's, there are points in time that I think it's helpful for folks to be aware of such as, you know, the due date for the expected pregnancy, if there was some kind of loss and being mindful of how to navigate those times, because while we might not be consciously thinking of some of those things, if they've moved through some of the the grief process um, later on down the line, they might still have reactions. Our body tends to remember some of those, those kinds of dates or have a sense of time. And so being able to be aware of that and how to engage in self-care and navigate that for yourself and in a relationship. Um, What are the supports that you can have in place? Again, I think around pregnancy and miscarriage or um, pregnancy loss, the idea is to be able to identify who you want to have certain information and to be able to make informed decisions about that. So if you have um, family members who you know are going to respect your wishes and your requests around how to navigate that um, through that process and will feel supportive. Maybe it feels supportive to have people know about that versus not providing a whole lot of information to an employer, for example, but just, you know, and then being able to think about 
and problem solve through how just the language to use, mm-hmm. you know. So do you say I'm out from I'm I have to take medical leave versus I've experienced a loss and I need to take leave? Um, then that can be important to different folks in different ways, obviously. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think just going back to that idea of one step at a time that um some folks think and I think societally there's a sense of especially because this is a topic and I do appreciate you bringing up this topic in general to discuss. Um, it's not talked about a lot. There's a lot of secrecy and privacy around it um, because it is such a personal experience for folks. And so I think to um, the idea of not taking, Oh, okay. You just have to get back to work and get back into things and start normal life again. I don't think that there's enough space in our society to allow for that, that sense of grief. People used to wear black to grieve for, for years on end. And now it's like your job allows you one day of leave for, you know, some kind of loss. And so I think being able to be realistic with yourself about where you are and where you're functioning at any point in time and being able to assert what your needs are, whether that's at work or whether that's interpersonally in relationships. Yeah. And and we the, one of the main goals I have for this podcast is to try to remove stigma around certain mm-hmm. things. And so I appreciate you taking so much time to talk about pregnancy loss, um, as well as just the whole focus on, on mental and emotional health. Um, that, that is something. And, and just to remind people, you, know, you mentioned one in four before, that you are not alone um, yes. and that a pregnancy loss or an inability to conceive in the way that others think is, is necessary does, is not a failing. And it, 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 it's not a personal failure on your part um, or your partner's part or anything like that. It's, um, it, it's nature. And, and in most cases, these are not things that we can control. Um, we can we can't always control our reactions to them either, but we can get help. Right. Um, and I think more and more over time, and, and some of the resources I share really frame it in this way, but framing it as a medical condition, similar to mental health, right? That how do we take care of ourselves in holistic ways? And so I think in not talking about it and silencing it, essentially, um, it, it makes it that much harder for people yeah. to be aware and to recognize that it's something that occurs or the frequency at which it occurs, to be honest, right. Compared mm-hmm. to other medical, it's far more common than many medical conditions that we know a lot about in, in public knowledge. Yeah. Right. Right. This is the, the, you know, it's not diabetes or high blood pressure, but prevalence is, is similar in some cases. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Janik, there are a few other topics I want us to touch on that aren't necessarily related to each other. Um, they're related to our overall um, topic, but um, as we're thinking about someone's story and their their own personal reproductive story, their their family formation, how do you cancel families who may be considering adoption as an alternative way of growing their family? Yeah, I think one of the things that um, is common practice within the mental health field around this is really to be able to process your full reaction to your story, to your reproductive story. Um, so if there is any kind of grief or loss around not being able to conceive in the way that you had imagined um, or have a child in the way that you had imagined, being able to fully grieve before pursuing some alternate routes, I think. Um, some people encourage folks, and that's one of the, the things that can be frustrating is folks who are dealing with infertility and might not be um, completely being transparent or open about their process that they're going through for obvious and and good reasons. Um, Someone might say, oh, well, why don't you just adopt? Or if it's not happening or it will happen or all of these misconceptions that folks have um, that 
that seems to be the easy answer. And there are a lot of um, constraints around that as well, obviously, in terms of legalities of it and all of the, the processes that are involved there, but certainly around financial concerns or financial considerations. Um, but I think more from a mental health standpoint, um, making sure that you're able to, I don't want to say fully go through the grieving process such that there's an end point. It's going to be an ongoing process in many regards, as I mentioned before, but to be able to make sure that you've been open and honest with yourself and within your partnership or your family um, about what that means for you. Um, I, I often think about it as well, a lot of people talk about it too, as it having been, okay, I had this idea of what the path was going to look like. And now that path has disappeared. And now I have to start down a new path, but rather than just shifting so quickly, being able to really um, recognize all of the emotions that come up around that certainly, I think is really important. And then I think being able to, if you were considering something like fostering and adopting or adopting, I think one thing that you could do is do research about it and find out what are all of the factors involved. I don't mean the logistical factors, but truly I mean the emotional factors, the things that might come up for you as you engage in that process that could still be there related to any routes that you tried to pursue previously that didn't go as planned necessarily or as you had hoped. But then also around things like um, the loss that's inevitable in the adoption process, for example, there are um, for on many on many levels for you not having had your um, family built in the way that you had imagined, but then also all of the pieces that are inevitable around adoption of the loss or different natures of different relationships with the biological parents of the adopted child. And so that there are just a lot of factors to consider there. And so um, there are a lot of therapists actually that specialize in adoption and can kind of help guide you through that process so that you're really considering all of those things up front. And that's not to deter people from that process at all, but rather just to kind of go in with open eyes and know what you can be doing proactively for yourselves as adoptive parents, but then also for the adoptive child as well. And I'll just briefly share that that my spouse and I struggled to conceive. We we did end up having three uh, wonderful children, twins, the first time around. But um, we were struggling for a year, and we started pursuing fostering and fostering to adopt. And it was an intense process. And they did counseling and training. We went through the the um, municipality where we were living, and they took us through multi weeks. And you couldn't miss a week um of the you can miss one week i think and that was it but i mean talking about it there was a focus on the emotions a child may be experiencing when they're in the foster system and how to respond to those but there thankfully was also what what you as the foster parents emotions may be and and how to deal with that and so um i would encourage anybody who's thinking about that just from my own experience absolutely seek out counseling specialized counseling whether go through the the programs um that are offered if you're looking at, at fostering and um, I guess it not just offered, but required, but so important and 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 really helped us to be more successful. I won't necessarily say that we were totally successful, but maybe had a greater chance of success when we, we did foster. Yeah. Um, so please. Yeah. No, that's such a good point, Kyle. I think the other piece of this is that this idea of community. And so because this isn't something that's necessarily discussed openly um, for a lot of people, to be able to find a sense of connection and community. For some people, talking about infertility is really hard and talking to people and hearing their stories is, isn't 
what do I want to say, doesn't necessarily feel helpful or supportive in their own individual process because some of the stories can be really sad or disheartening in many regards. And yet at the same time, it can feel really supportive to recognize that you're not alone, as you were saying before. Um, so whether that's um, throughout the process of infertility or certainly through fostering and adoption, some of the, I used to participate in um, foster parents uh, support groups. So where just people are able to connect and, and share some of the joys and challenges and, and that, how, how they're navigating that and all of the emotions that come up around that just to have a dedicated space for that. Um, but also to have a sense of community for the children and parents and families to be able to connect and um, recognize that they're not alone in those experiences as well and in social ways as well to feel a sense of belonging. Yeah. And I know a lot of our members are engaged in those groups, maybe online or through um, other groups like AFSA and so forth through the unions. Um, so I encourage you, if you're looking for that, seek that out um, and, and don't hesitate to, to ask others about that or ask if you're at post and you're in the point service, ask a CLO about those um, resources. Um, and the other thing that I would say about that is because, especially since the pandemic, so many of those groups are now yeah. And so depending on where you're located in the world, you can also access um, things in different time zones that fit your schedule, which is really nice. Well, and I, I'm going to um, just jump to a question in that, um, you know, a large percentage of our members and our listeners are overseas. Mm -hmm. And I know that um, we, we connected with you through the Truman Group. Um, and so we know that you specialize in working with expats. So what special challenges have you found in your practice um, for for patients who are facing infertility outside the U.S.? I think, I mean, it varies. It, it can go both ways again, where sometimes folks feel a greater sense of community living overseas because the, the community in which they live, people are kind of in the same boat of being away from their country of origin and family and friends necessarily. And so there's a really tight knit community. And so they feel and experience a great deal of support and maybe a greater level of openness about the process they're going through, for example, that has maybe some, I don't want to say anonymity, but in a way that they might not experience in, in a place where they grew up, where people have particular expectations of them. Um, but in other regards, there can be more or less resources depending on where folks are located. Sometimes um, overseas, they might have greater access to care just in terms of affordability, for example, for different procedures. Um, but in other places, um, some of the challenges certainly that come up are around um, just even language language barriers or yeah. things come up around feeling comfortable within the medical system that's there. Again, some places have exceptional medical care, and if they're through the embassy or other um, communities, they might be able to have... Um, very easy referrals to local providers and things like that and, and feel really confident in the care. And then other places, the level of medical care isn't the same as it would be in the United States, for example. And so that can be really challenging, but certainly just being in a different place that's a different culture and a different language, for example, can be disorienting and increase the level of uncertainty because even when someone's speaking your language and from your culture, there's still often a lot of anxiety around, did I get all of the information? Did I understand that correctly? So then adding these other additional layers on top of that can be really challenging and anxiety producing for folks as well. And thank goodness there are providers like you who are available to our members wherever they may be. Yeah. Um, and I have one last thing that one last topic I want to touch on, and that was that that's that you know, most of our discussion here has had an underlying you know, basis of heteronormativity. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about people 
conceiving or, or not being able to conceive and facing challenges um, and essentially family formation between heterosexual couples. Um, that's not everybody's reality. You have, um, I, I, you shared with me in your bio and I shared with our listeners that you have experience working with uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering as they're looking at their own family formation, their own reproductive stories or family formation stories, what do you encounter with members of that community um, that are the same or maybe slightly different or totally different from um, heterosexuals? Sure. I think one of the parallels, certainly, or one of the similarities is just navigating all of the expectations that come from our families of origin or our society, I think. And so just being able to, and I think certainly for the LGBTQ plus um, community um the nature of their relationship with their family of origin can be perhaps additionally complicated or complex. And yet I say that, and there are a fair number of heterosexual folks who navigate really challenging dynamics there as well. And so I guess all that I mean to say there is um, just the piece around seeking a sense of community and support. That's the piece that I tend to focus on with folks, again, from, from either population and, and just being able to identify what's going to be helpful and supportive. And if their family, their family may have expectations of them pursuing a particular idea of what family life might mean for them um, or growing a family. Um, and they might want to pursue that or they might not. And so I think part of it is just navigating that. What do they want for themselves and navigating with partners? And I think sometimes it's, again, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity, being able to navigate perhaps some of those differences that exist and and that might shift or change over time as well. When folks get together in a partnership, sometimes they have a very particular idea of things, but then as um, some of these processes develop over time, um, it could be that people are in different places. Someone might say, I'm done with the process. I don't want to try this anymore, or I don't want to consider this option that we said we would consider a long time ago. And to be able to navigate that together around, um, I think just being able to identify what are your values and how do you lead a life that aligns with that, not necessarily based on a particular outcome, but how do you realign for a couple or for an individual with those values again? Yeah. So I think I, I appreciate that, you know, this is very similar for a lot of people. There may be different dynamics um, depending on each individual story, but um, we all have family expectations. We have our own idea of our reproductive story and we have our own realities that we're facing. Um, but but I appreciate your emphasis that we're not alone and that we can seek out that community regardless of how we define community and, and, we're, and how community is defined for us by our location um, as well. So it, Dr. Janet, this has been an a wonderful discussion. But before we wrap up, do you have anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? I think just the the thing that you have said on a few occasions today, which is that you're not alone and that this can be talked about. That doesn't mean that anyone going through um, a diagnosis of infertility um, needs to talk about it or needs to be public about it. Again, I think it's each individual's decision to be able to figure out how to navigate that, but to know that you're not alone. And I think the last thing that I would like to leave with folks um, are a few resources that I, you know, direct people to. Um, I think um, PSI Postpartum Support International is a really fantastic organization. Um, So they work with folks both who are pregnant or postpartum and, um, 
around their mental health, certainly. They offer a lot of support groups around any of the things we've been talking about. So around infertility, around perinatal or um, prenatal loss, certainly around um, early infant loss and things along those lines. Um, and that's for moms and dads. They have particular groups for particular populations that are really targeted. They um, offer groups and hotlines in different languages as well. They actually just, I mean, really, really recently, like within past weeks, um, started a new hotline. So that's 24 seven every day of the year. Um, oh. all this hotline, um, I'll just give, I'll leave the number here just in case. Folks okay, please. And we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. That would be great. So it's one eight, three, three, nine, four, three, five, seven, four, six, or one eight, three, three, nine help four moms and the four is the number four. Um, so again, that could be if you're pregnant, postpartum, post-loss support, anything along those lines, but they have um, licensed mental health professionals and medical professionals available to talk to folks, both to give them to brief support, but then also to provide them additional resources that could be helpful for them. So they're a fantastic resource. They do yeah. have meetings. The other thing that I would mention about that is if folks are pregnant or experiencing um, a lot of um, navigating the medical system around infertility um, and dealing with any mental health concerns simultaneously. They have a consult line for OBGYNs or medical providers, whoever are helping them through that process to consult if there is any desire or need for um, medication support for psychiatric medication or anything along those lines around managing depression or anxiety in addition to you know seeking um, mental health support around the lines of psychotherapy or something like that. So that's great because some folks are not experts around mental health, but they are around um, obstetrics and, and gynecological concerns. So Right. And, and can help, help provide that support outside expert areas. And that's amazing. That's right. Um, another re wonderful resource that I would really recommend is Resolve. So the, the National Infertility um, group, they provide tons of educational resources and support. Their website is so comprehensive and I, I just really want to promote them because I think they do a really nice job about being really intentional about the language that they use. All of the information that they put on their website is, is truly um, evidence-based and they are very thoughtful about how they present that information. It's in a very unbiased way. Um, and they also even offer resources about financial opportunities like scholarships and grants. And I mean, it is such a comprehensive list. I, I find it to be really supportive. Another thing that I find really helpful on there. And so if you're listening and you have not dealt with in infertility yourself, it's a great way to educate yourself though, how to be supportive of folks who are dealing with infertility. They have a lot of myth busting kind of on there and they have a lot of things that go through this is what not to say. These are things, to say, you know, but, but really coach in a really practical kind of way. So I really appreciate the resources that they have. And they also provide a lot of avenues for advocacy there as well. Um, the other resource that, and the final resource that I will mention yeah. um, is a book. So I have it right here, but it's by Amy Wenzel. She is a clinical psychologist as well. Um, and she just, it's called Coping with Infertility, Marriage, a Miscarriage and Neonatal Loss, Finding Perspective and Creating Meaning. A lot of the work that I do with folks um, really parallels a lot of the things that she talks about in her book, but it's really practical. It's easily, it's very readable. Um, it's not clinical. She's a clinical psychologist and she uses a lot of um, practical exercises or um, strategies from cognitive behavioral therapy. And yet um, it is act-based as well, where it's, again, finding a sense of meaning, even amidst loss or some of the challenges that come along with fertility, infertility or any kind of perinatal loss that's involved. 
Excellent. Thank you. And as I said, we will put links um, for, for listeners to, as well as the phone number for PSI in the show notes. Um, so please look for that. If those are resources you'd like to take advantage of, um, you can find them and um, come back to them. So uh, Dr. Alicia Janik, thank you so much for joining us today on AFSA Talks and sharing your expertise with us. I really appreciate it. Oh, and thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. And again, I just appreciate your efforts in promoting awareness and, and understanding about and the importance of mental health around infertility. So thank you. Thank you. The Foreign Service Benefit Plan offers support for mental health needs under Section 5E of the brochure. In addition, the program ABLE2 does offer specific support for those who are facing infertility. Please note that ABLE2 is available only to U.S. residents. Access to infertility providers with proven outcomes um, are available through Aetna's Institutes of Excellence Infertility Network. You can learn more about that at aetnainfertilitycare.com. This has been a production of the American Foreign Service Protective Association. All information offered in this podcast is meant to be educational. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are their own and do not necessarily represent AFSPA. Should there be any discrepancy between information offered in this podcast and official plan documents for the Foreign Service Benefit Plan or the other products offered by AFSPA, the policy provisions will prevail. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe to AFSPA Talks to catch our next episode. Please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app and share feedback with us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Search for at AFSPA Cares.